Turn to to Job 31 this morning. I feel like it's finally fall. Hopefully we won't get duped with another 90 degree day. Um, I've lived here in Columbia long enough to not count my chickens before they hatch, right? Um, but Job 31 this morning, uh, you know, last words get a lot of attention. And it feels like there's so much pressure there to say something meaningful or profound. Um, you could just feel like how, you know, it's going to be memorialized, so what do I say? How's, how am I going to be remembered? Uh, Thomas Edison, last words, it's very beautiful over there. Uh, Money can't buy life was Bob Marley's last words. Um, Go on, get out. Uh, Last words by Karl Marx. Major General John Sedgwick, they can't hit an elephant at this distance just before being shot off his horse by a sniper. Jane Austen, I want nothing but death. Winston Churchill, I'm bored with it all. And so some profound, some not so profound last words. The way people are processing that moment of death and finality. I think when you look at the, uh, the words of Christ, you see his last sermons really in the Garden of Gethsemane. You find that recorded in, in the Gospel of John, it kind of crescendoing in John 15 with the vine and the branches. And then his seven last words on the cross. With Job, these are the last words, really, that we're going to hear from him. He has a a few exclamations at the end of the book, but this is kind of the end of his speech that he has been making and that we've seen these cycle of speeches all through the book. What are Job's last words? Well, we could really boil it down to kind of a phrase. Uh, Really, it would be, let God judge me. He wouldn't find anything. It's sad and it's imploring. It's emotional, and Job's wearing his heart on his sleeve, that he has suffered all these things, and it's been not fair. It's not right. He didn't do anything to deserve this. It's what we've called puzzling pain and undeserved suffering. He's an innocent sufferer, and it foreshadows the redemptive, innocent suffering of Jesus. And as Job concludes, he once again comes back to this mindset throughout chapter 31, I didn't do any of these things, and yet I've experienced all this suffering What is going on? But in his despair, it hides a wonderful gem for us, kind of like an oyster and a pearl, or like pulling a coat out because it's fall season, or maybe for you ladies, a purse and finding a $20 bill stuck in the pocket. Something unexpected. And so for Job, it becomes that. It becomes finding a diamond in a dark cave, And so in the midst of his puzzling pain, in the midst of his questioning about why am I suffering these things and it's not fair, it can point us to a glorious truth that really where we rest is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. One of the most difficult questions you ask in the midst of suffering, and particularly when you can't attach it to a reason, is why me? Why me that I'm going through this? And it only serves to increase your pain. And when you add into that as a believer, the sense that this why me, and it feels like puzzling pain, and and ultimately what it feels like is God somehow hates you now. That he's turned from you, that he doesn't love you. Why is he out to get you? And that's Job's 
mindset. And so these three chapters that we've walked through over the last three weeks, Job 29, 30, and 31, we begin to see how they really even picture Christ so clearly uh, from the book of Job. And so chapter 29, Job reflects on his past life, how good it was and how wonderful it was and and how beautiful it was and how he had all these things and this wealth and protection and respect and and a family and he used those though though not to consume them he didn't use those for his own benefit but he used those to help others to help widows and orphans and the dispossessed and the impoverished and he loved others and he, and he tried to serve others and that was is actually of and he basically says i was a good king and we understand that that actually foreshadows the future reign of King Jesus. That Jesus will have all power and all authority on earth, and he will do everything on earth as will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is to say perfectly and immediately and clearly. And Christ will rescue and redeem, and, and sin will be gone. And so Job 29 was Job looking back, but for us it's looking forward. Job 30 was Job in the midst of his suffering, and, but this is life now. And it's horrible. And, and, he, and he really focused in, he lasered in on the worthless mockers. And really it pointed to Christ on the cross. And, and how we are actually those worthless mockers. We are the ones who shout, crucify him. And we are the ones that want to mock his authority and our sinfulness. And we desperately need to rescue. And so Job 30 was Job's life now in misery and in suffering. But it pointed and it really looks to Jesus on the cross. And Job 31 he comes back to, to innocence. He comes back to this idea of, of, of I'm righteous. I didn't really do anything to deserve this kind of suffering. And so that's kind of the bigger picture context of Job 29, 30, and 31. But we can zoom in even further. And, and Job 31 is a chiasm. It's a chiastic structure. And, and sometimes you use those words and people are like, why, why do we even use that word? What does it mean? But the structure is helpful. And it's a, and it's a common tool, particularly in Hebrew, writing, but also you see it in the New Testament by Paul quite frequently. In a chiasm, just think like a pyramid. And what it is, is on either end you have a truth, and then the, and they mirror each other, and then you have another set of truths on either end, and they mirror each other, and then everything's in the middle. You can think of it like a sandwich. Mark is very famous as gospel for what we actually call Mark and sandwiches. Truth on one end, truth on the other end, lots of meat in the middle, right? That's where all the good stuff is. Right? Give, give me all the meats right in the, in the middle of the sandwich. And so why would they use that structure? And, and that's really the way thir Job 31 is laid out. Sit, mirror truths and then mirror truths and then a point in the middle. Because for the author to do that, it's to emphasize the middle. It's to say, look at this. And I want to remind you about it. I'm going to bookend it for you. But I really want you to see this. And so the way Job 31 is structured is essentially I've kept the covenant. He says at the start, and, he, and we'll look at this in just a moment, and at the end, look at the covenant way the covenant has been kept. And then the next thing he says is, so test me, God, or try me. It really is like an invitation to a courtroom. God, bring some evidence. If you're going to do all this to me, then, then prove why I deserve it. I'm suffering. I'm clearly being punished. Or at least I feel like I'm being punished. So prove to me why I deserve this kind of punishment. And, and I just want to pause there because if your heart is to say in that moment, well, we all deserve hell, so I just want to pause and let you know that's a very unhealthy way to think about Job and suffering. Because the pain that he's experiencing can't be explained by his sin. That's his whole point. 
And so, and so I've kept the covenant, and then God, so God tests me, and then everything in the middle is the, is the evidence, is, is to prove Job's point of why he doesn't deserve to have lost all ten of his children and his wife and all of his earthly possessions and his own health. He doesn't deserve this. He didn't do sins in a way that should be treated this way. And so it's this structure. And so what we'll be able to do is actually look at it structurally that way. And so we'll look at it in those steps, kind of the covenant uh, and then the challenge and then the corroboration of the evidence that he gives in the middle. And so that should just at least help you understand the structure of the, of the chapter. So let's start with the covenant. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 of Job 31. And then I'm going to go all the way to the end and read the other end of it and kind of explain it. And so Job 31, 1 through 3, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Now go to the end and we'll see kind of the flip side of this same kind of covenant mindset here. Verse 38, if my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. There's a contemporary book to the book of Job. It's actually one of the oldest books written. It is the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And there's a copy that's on display in uh, London at a museum. And it's right from the same time frame. And the Egyptian Book of the Dead... It pictures a person, and, and what it was is it would be a book that was written and then buried with a mummy, supposed to help them, guide them in the afterlife. And then the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the dead person appears before the pantheon of Egyptian gods and goddesses, over 40 of them, and they're being judged about their life. And in this process, there's a set of scales where their heart is on one side and a feather is on the other side. And the, the depiction is that any weight in your heart, and by that they meant some kind of weight of wickedness, is weighed against a feather, and if it tips the scales, then you don't go into a blessed afterlife, but you go into an afterlife of punishment. The person in the Book of the Dead then begins to recount all the ways that they have not done wrong. And, and it's interesting because we're going back several thousands of years, but lots of them we would agree with what they would consider to be wicked behavior. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, they, they say things like they haven't committed adultery. They haven't murdered someone. They haven't, they haven't stolen anything from anybody. But what's interesting about it is the Book of the Dead focuses singularly on actions. It's what have you done and it has this mindset that's actually pervasive in every other religion. That life's about what you do. And so do good, get good, do bad, get bad, do right, and you must be right. What it doesn't have is a weighing of the inner person. And so it's interesting that in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it's your heart, but what it's saying is it's all about what I've done with my hands. It's being religious but not righteous. It's very pharisaical. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, the religious ones, the holiest ones, they would tithe on even the smallest amount of spice. But Jesus describes them as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. In other words, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. 
You can dress it up, make it try to look nice and fancy and clean, but you don't want to sleep there. You could go, and I just had my son power wash the outside of our house the, uh, the other weekend. You could go power wash a mausoleum. I guarantee you don't want to spend a night in the crypt. And Jesus' point is all your actions can look good, and you can clean up as much as you want on the outside, but what's going on in the inside is what really matters. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, it's all about actions. What's fascinating about Job is while actions are there, his focus is on the heart. It's what is going on inside of me. He opens with this covenant. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? It, it's really Jesus' kind of language. When you think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart, or in his heart. Job's testimony from the beginning is not necessarily, I haven't gone and committed adultery, although he goes there later. But it's in an area that only God would know. No one else would know. But in an area only God would know that goes to the very core of my being, what I set my thoughts on, what I set my mind on, what I set my heart on. I could be sitting in the city square. No one else knows what's going on, but I'm lusting. God knows that I have pushed against that. I've run against that. I've made a covenant with my eyes to not be consumed in that way. He goes to his heart. And he uses this covenant kind of language of purity. And it's an understanding that God has called me to be holy. God has called me to be righteous. And so what matters most is not what you think, what other people think. But how does God view me? His first defense is this covenant kind of language. I, I have committed from my inner man. And what Job is saying ultimately is my inside matches my outside. Very different from the Pharisees, very different from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and I think very different from many people today. Where we can clean up on the outside, but what's going on on the inside, we think, just gets ignored, and yet it doesn't. And so then if you go to the end of the chapter, Job comes back, and, and it's interesting because what he appeals to is language that goes all the way back to creation. It's language that's used to describe the blessings of God for his covenant people, or the curse that existed on the earth for people that have violated his covenant with them. When he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He has them in a garden. He feeds them. He's caring for them. They have everything they would ever need there. There's safety, there's security. There's promise of eternal relationship with him. Just don't do this. They break it. And when they break it, there are massive consequences that start to fall. And as he depicts those consequences, we think of the consequence toward Eve. And he says, after this, is there'll be pain in childbirth and your desire will be toward your husband and, and yet he will rule over you. And so it's going to mess with relationships and it's going to mess with life and it's going to mess with what would normally be for a woman the greatest moment of joy or a tremendous moment of joy for her is now going to be mingled with intense sorrow. For the serpent, there's cursing. But then even for Adam, what does he tell him? From, then, from now forward, when you try to work the ground, you're going to work it with sweat and blood. You're, you're going to work the ground with thorns and thistles. And so as Job starts talking about the way he's lived his life, and he's talking about what he has done, he says, If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last. In other words, if I've done all these wicked things, if I have broken covenant with you, God, 
then what would I have expected? Let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. But that was not Job's experience. Job's experience was astounding fruitfulness, was astounding flourishing. And it doesn't mean there was never weeds or thorns, but that was not the depiction. It's kind of like when he would sow stuff, it would grow. This guy had the green thumb. I could kill a plant and nothing flat. Job, it's like everything he touched just grew and flourished. And his point was this, God, from the beginning of the book, my covenant and the inner man, who I am on the outside matches who I am on the inside. And God, you know that to be true. And at the end of the book, he's saying, if, at the end of the chapter, he's saying, God, if I had been sinning in all these ways, then why didn't the land rise up against me? But it never rose up against me. If it's true that this is the way I've been doing, if it's true that I deserve your wrath, then why did it never happen before now? God, I was righteous with you. Hard crops, God even tells his covenant people, in Deuteronomy 28 would be a sign of breaking covenant with them. Deuteronomy 28, 15, when God speaks to his covenant people, says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And that never happened with Job before now. He's lived a long life, 10 children. They're all now adults. And, and never, never has he experienced the kind of things he's experiencing. But it's all happened in a matter of a few days. And so why, God, am we doing, like, you know what Job's saying? He's saying this, I kept up my end of the bargain, God. I kept up my side of the covenant. My inside matches my outside. I'm a covenant keeper that doesn't deserve this kind of suffering. And so he goes from there and he challenges God. And he wants to start arguing with God now. And he's really, as I said earlier, calling God into a courtroom to prove where he's right or he's wrong. There's a scene in a movie from years ago where the babysitter is watching these kids and he asks them if they brush their teeth and they said yes, and he asked the little kid, did you just run your toothbrush underwater, or did you actually brush your teeth? I've got a friend at the police department that can run DNA results on this, and he'll know. Kid's eyes get big, he runs back and brushes his teeth, right? That would be a really helpful tool for parents. How do we prove something right or wrong? How do we get DNA evidence that what Job is experiencing isn't right? How do we actually, how, how would Job vindicate himself? How do any of us vindicate ourselves? We can't. At the end of the day, we can't. How does Paul, do you remember in Corinthians, how does Paul vindicate himself to the Corinthians? Do you remember? He basically says, look at everything I've suffered. If I'm in it for me, why on earth have I gone through all this? How's Jesus vindicated? It's only by the resurrection. If you're really who you say you are, get off the cross. Not understanding he's staying on the cross for their sake. How does Job vindicate himself? How does he work through to prove to anyone else that he doesn't deserve this? And, and I'll be honest with you, I think the one he's working to prove the most to is his own heart. 
Because you've seen so much insecurity and fear with him. So much confusion. What have I done for this God? And so you can see the challenge of verses 4 through 6. He says, does he not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. You can go to the end and see similar language, verse 35 through 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. He uses the same word, root word in, in number, is the same one with indictment and account. And really, it, it's, it's kind of a mathematical accounting kind of language. And it really means like a debt ledger. You have a ledger, business does. And on one side, you have all the debts. And on the other side, you might have all the possessions or all, all the benefits. And, and so you have red and you have black ink. And is this a deficit? Is, is this good for me? And Job is saying, God, where is it? Where are all, where's all the red ink? I wish I knew what it was I'd done wrong, but I don't know. How can I know if you won't tell me what I've done wrong? He's asking God, he's inviting God, fine, God, let's go into the courtroom. Could you be that bold? Could you be so bold and say, God, then fine, let's go to the judgment seat and you prove what I've done wrong. That's bold. Man, I can stand here and think of lots of things I've done wrong. And Job is saying, prove it, God. Prove what I've done in these areas. It's a cry and a challenge at the same time. He says something else here that would be a mark of his innocence. He, he's really kind of almost picturing the book of the dead when he says, judge me in a just scale. And so kind of almost to seal the deal, down in verse 35, he says, Oh, that I have one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. The, the word signature there is actually says, here's my tav. It's the last Hebrew letter. Um, maybe in one way to understand it would be, uh, think of folks that maybe would be, have been illiterate a number of years ago, and they would say, put your mark. Here's my mark. Here's my thumbprint. Here's my, you know, bleed. Here's, here's my blood. I'm owning this. And what's interesting about this is it shows up two other times in the Old Testament in this kind of same mindset. One is David. And when David goes and he's living with the Philistines, he knows that they're going to be worried. I mean, he's the guy that killed Goliath. And he's running from Saul. And, and so he runs and he's literally camping among the enemies of Israel because he knows Saul won't be able to get to him there. But, but he's in the midst of the enemies of Israel, so they're going to want to kill David too. And so he's trying to convince them, frankly, that he's crazy and that he would do know them, them no harm. And so what he does is he goes and he puts his tab, his mark on the doorpost of his house, and it's a way of saying he's innocent. Ezekiel has a vision later. In Ezekiel's vision, God is going to judge the children of Israel, those that live in Jerusalem, who have been idolaters. And in this vision that Ezekiel has, God sends forth angels who go and they mark on the forehead of every innocent person, the tav. That's the language. They put a mark on them, a tav, and it's a mark of innocence on them. And then the, the avenging angels go through and kill all the idolaters. It's a picture of the end judgment of the world. 
And so this kind of mark, it, it finds its origin, as far as we can go historically, in Job. And it's Job's way of saying, I'm innocent to this. I'll put my name on this. You know, we, we think of behind the Iron Curtain, the tendency of the secret police to work a false confession. Put your signature on this. And the person is in this impossible position of being tortured to death or lying about what they put their name to. And what Job's saying is, I refuse to admit I'm guilty where I've done no wrong. I refuse. I put my mark on my innocence. So God, if you have all this evidence, bring it out. Prove it. There's nothing there. Job's claim is God has not proven his right to do these things to him. Now, that's very interesting because when God responds, what God will focus on is whether he has the right to do these things or not. There's lots of Job's questions he's not going to answer. But he will deal with that one. And as we move forward in the book of Job, we're going to have to wrestle through that. Does God have the right to do what God does? That becomes the big issue in Job. Job's challenge here is, as long as you have this system where you should only suffer if you've done wrong. Or if someone's suffering, it automatically means they must have done wrong to deserve that suffering. As long as you operate with that mindset, there is no space in your theology for the suffering of Jesus, who deserved none of it. There is no grace in your heart to friends and family, maybe even distant people who are suffering, and they don't deserve it. And so in Job's system, if I've suffered like this, then I must have done something, but I know I didn't do it, so why am I suffering? This isn't fair. When was the last time you told God this is not fair? I got about 45 minutes on me. Puzzling pain doesn't feel fair. Sorrow and suffering you didn't do anything to get doesn't feel fair. The untimely loss of a loved one, that health diagnosis, that um, struggling in your heart, that anxiety attack, that sleeplessness, that depression, that economic downturn, that argument, that relational conflict that you can't seem to be able to resolve rightly, that strain doesn't feel fair. That's where Job's at. So God, if you're going to do this, how about some proof here? And so what Job does next then is much like an attorney, he offers his own evidence. And, and just because I'm a Baptist, I like to alliterate things, it's corroboration. <laughs> but you can think of it as a, as a court case. Uh, and so everything in the middle, the meat in the middle that Job wants to focus on through this chiastic structure is how I haven't done any of these things. Now, there's a couple ways we could, we could work our way through this text, and so I've chosen one particular way. And one of the things we could do is just try to go item by item and look at them very deeply and intensely. I've chosen not, that, not to go that path. The other way is to really understand how Job's functionally thinking through it. And, and I do think that is helpful as an approach because it helps us to understand the way when someone's suffering puzzling pain 
and they walk with God the way they try to process through it and the way they try to work through it. And, and we could really almost think of it this way. If I have done X, then I do deserve Y, but I didn't do X, so I don't deserve Y. Um, if I ran the stop sign, I deserve a ticket, but I didn't run the stop sign, so I don't deserve a ticket. Uh, when I took my driver's test, I failed it twice. Um, we were joking last week, we were talking at the, at the fellowship meal, and um, I don't remember how it came up, but I was asking the folks around us how many speeding tickets or tickets they had received. There were a few ladies there that had received tickets in school zones. I won't name them. Uh, my very first ticket was in a school zone. Um, I, I, running away, I had the most tickets. But my, that's not why I failed my driving test. When I failed my driving test, it was parallel parking. And now let me give you my defense. In Maryland, state of Maryland, when you go to a parallel parking, I'm old, right? I'm 48. So uh, they'd have these two flags, and they were in these concrete, um, like almost look like a bowl. I'm sure that's what they'd use as a bowl. So it would rock. It would move, right? And, and so they had these two flags. You had to parallel park, and you had to get within so many inches of the curb, and you couldn't hit a flag. If you bumped a flag and it rocked, that was two points. You could miss up to three points and still get your, pass your driving test. If you knocked it over, that was four points, automatic failure. That's, that's the rule, right? So I practice, I practice, I practice. Uh, it's the day I turn uh, 16. It's on my birthday. I go take the test. I get in. This state police officer, she gets in the car with me. I'm using my grandparents' car because I was not going to use my parents' stick shift 78 Ford van to take the driving test in. So I'm using my grandmother's car. Um, you know, it, it, I'm not unkind here, but it smelled like grandma's car, right? Like I don't, it just had a smell. It was, it was a nice smell. It was a pleasant smell. Um, but I'm in grandma's car and it had like a little trash bag and tissues and all the, all the wonderful things all grandmas have, right? And so his, here I am, the 16-year-old kid who loves fast cars. And, and I back in and I bumped, I bumped the flag. I saw it do a little, this tiniest little shimmy. I'm like, I'm good. It's the last part of the test. Get it parked. Cop opens the door. She goes, okay. Shuts the door. I was plenty close enough. I pull out, pull to a stop sign, put my blinker on, park the car. She said, you failed. I said, why I fail? She said, because you failed the parallel parking. I said, I bumped it. I didn't knock it over. That's two points. She said, minus four for bad attitude. You failed. She needed some righteousness. You know what I'm saying? So I came back the very next day. You can come the next day, take the test again. Next day, I was so nervous, I knocked it over clean. Like, it's just, same lady. She got, I'm like, you know, heart rate up. So now I feel like an idiot. It took me another week to be able to do it. If you knock it over, you deserve to fail. If you just bump it, you didn't. Job's point is this. If I did it, I deserve it. But I didn't do it, why am I getting it? You ever feel that way with God? What have I done for this? And so all the middle section is Job's proof, and we can look at it from a couple different directions. The heart of the matter, because that's what he goes after, in stark contrast to the way other religions think in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which was in his own day and time. And the, really the question of what are the dirty hands that I have? What is all this bad stuff that I've done? And so let's just, we can work through this. We've already read about the lustful thoughts that went after the heart. But in verse 7, you see this. If my step has turned aside from the way, my heart has gone after my eyes. If any spot has stuck to my hands. And 
And so did I see something, covet it, and go grasping for it? You know what coveting is? Coveting is simply the belief, the, the mindset that stuff will satisfy me. And that stuff, that word stuff, you can fill in that blank with money, relationships, approval, respect, degrees. It's, it's that something will satisfy. If I have this, if God would give me kids, if God would give me a spouse, if God would give me a better job, if God would give me success, if God would give me respect, if God would give me friends, if God would give me... Whatever that blank is, it's a heart that says... Coveting heart is an idolatrous heart that says Jesus isn't enough. I need Jesus plus... And Job is saying, if my heart has gone, who would know this? Who would know this? Only God. You see, because the reality is stuff isn't necessarily sinful. You can really, really want a boat, go get a boat, buy a boat. I don't know why anybody wants a boat. I I grew up near the coast. Lord bless you if you love boats. Um, To me, it's a hole in the water to throw money into. But but maybe that's just me because I don't know how to drive a boat. So, um, and I can't fish anyway. So why go on a boat anyway? But if you can want a boat, get a boat, go buy a boat, and in Ecclesiastes, delight in the boat, and enjoy the boat, and use the boat for ministry, and use it to bless other people, and delight in the boat, and be on the boat, and have fun in the boat, and enjoy God's creation, and you can do it rightly, but you can also covet a boat. You can also, this is what I want, this is make me happy, and if I only had this, and, and if I gain this, and, and tell yourself the whole time, I'll use it for Jesus, right? Kind of like the guy who says, uh, what would you do if you had a million dollars? If, if you publishers clearinghouse showed up and you actually won, or if you got the Monopoly millionaire, whatever thing at McDonald's or whatever, if you got it, what would you do? And you're like, oh, okay, so first of all, I've got to pay taxes. That's half. That's, I'm down to 500 grand. Down to 500 grand. But Jesus wants me to give to the church or to his ministry, so I'm going to take at least a tenth, and I'm going to give that to, to ministries or charities or the church, and, and then the rest of it I'm going to spend. And this mindset, if I had access to that, I'd be happy. If I was healthy, I'd be happy. And you can start to covet health. It's, it's weird. So coveting is this mindset. And who knows? Because the guy could be coveting a boat and go get a boat. And this other guy not and get a boat. And there's nothing wrong with the boat. And who knows? Jesus knows. That's who knows. And what Job is saying is that's not how I lived my life. He had lands, he had crops, he had sheep, he had goats, he had camels, he had 10 kids. But Job's heart was not ruled. He saw those blessings as grace gifts from God, not as something to make him happy. His friends didn't understand that because their whole point in the book of Job is, Job, if you'll just repent, God will give you all this stuff that will make you happy again. And Job's like, that's never how I live. And so out of his heart, he says, that's not what drives me. Verse 15, he says, he didn't think arrogantly. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Did not one fascist in the womb? So who are we talking about? Back up a little bit. Verse 13, if I rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Did not one fashion us in the womb? Job did not live with this arrogant mindset as he looked at other people. He didn't judge them. He didn't think of himself as better. Contrary to his friend's mindset, who thought themselves better than others because of all the success and wealth they had, that's not how Job operated. And so Job, if someone that was working for him came to him and they needed help, he didn't think, well, if they were just more like me, they'd be in a better off situation. He thought, how can I help them? I'm not better than them. Job was not driven by racism. Job was not driven by classism, right? 
Job didn't think of himself as naturally smarter, wiser, stronger, with a better work ethic than everybody. He didn't run around judging people. He wasn't ruled by an arrogant heart. Again, who would know? You ever muttered under your breath about somebody? I mean, worse than that, you ever just talked openly badly about somebody? You ever just judged somebody? Well, if they would only be more like me about this. Job says that's not Who would know? Only God would know. Fear of man, verse 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate. It's an interesting phrase. It's a turn of a phrase. And what it means is that Job would be in the city. There'd be an orphan or somebody in need in front of him. And he looks up and behind the orphan, he can see all of his buddies watching him. So he does what he does to gain the approval of his friends rather than whatever it would take to help this one. He says, I'm not ruled by, I wasn't ruled by fear of man that way. I didn't do what I did to please other people. Again, who would know? Only God would know. Verses 24 through 25. If I've made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, did I trust in wealth? Did I find my security in my stuff? No, I didn't. Again, who would know? Verses 26 through 27. If I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. Heard a Christian comedian once, he talked about being in Vietnam, and he had one guy, when they went through boot camp, the guy was an avowed atheist. He runs across him in Vietnam some months later, they're in the, in the jungles, uh, out trekking through the jungles trying to fight the Viet Cong, and he looks over, and the guy has a Star of David, a cross hanging from his, his thing, and a yin-yang symbol. And he's like, what happened to atheism? He goes, look, I'm just trying to cover all my bases. That's kind of what Job's saying. Like, like, yeah, I believed God, but when God, or maybe others weren't looking, they would worship the sun and the moon. And so I, I kissed my hand. I gave obedience to an idol, trying to cover my bases, just in case, I, just in case I'm wrong. We get it all covered. It's the Christian who wants to check their horoscope. Now I'm just meddling. just want to cover all my bases. I want to know what's going to happen. I'll serve God plus my idols. Well, if we really bring it to our day and time, it's I'll serve Jesus, but I also still really believe that wealth and the pursuit of it is actually what will make me satisfied. I want Jesus plus. Who would know? God would know. In verse 30, We'll just back up to 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. Job had enemies. And enemies would come after him. And so did Job get this inner delight or joy when he saw God bring judgment against him? I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Again, who would know? Only God would know. Job has brought all this evidence before God. And what he says, God, I was not ruled by, by my lust, I was not ruled by my coveting, I was not ruled by my arrogance, I was not ruled by, by wanting evil to happen to my enemies. This is not how I operated. Who would know? Only God. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it was all about what did I do. Job understands it's about who we are. When Christ calls us to salvation, it literally is death to you, life in him. I take up my cross, I follow him. 
Paul says, it's not I that live any longer, but Christ, crucified Christ who lives in me. Paul says later, that what's the biggest goal of his life? He's laid aside all the religious stuff. Uh, tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Jew of the Jews. He says that I want to know him, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. I want Christ in me to come out of me. I want my life to be consumed. I want my outside to match my inside, but I don't start on the outside. I start by running to Jesus to do work on the inside of me. Job is saying this, my outside matches my inside, but the reason is because the inside was righteous. He then points to all these sufferings. What's fascinating is it's all things that he suffered. He says, if he's actually coveted, verse 8, then, then if I ran the stop sign, if I knocked over the, the parking parallel parking pole, then I deserve to fail. If I lived coveting, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. Well, that's actually exactly what happened. Job is saying the punishment would fit the crime. I've had the punishment, but I didn't do the crime. Verses 9 through 10. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door. Then let my wife grind for another, let others bow down on her. He's saying, look, if I've committed adultery with somebody else's wife, then I would deserve to lose my wife. Well, Job's lost his wife and he never committed adultery. She said, curse God and die and left the scene. She packed up her bag and she's gone. But he didn't do the crime to deserve this time. Injustice. If he's rejected all these things, the cause of his manservant, my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? In other words, if I've been unjust, I deserve injustice. Well, Job has received injustice, and he was always just. He's despised in his suffering, even though he didn't despise. Remember, Job didn't look down on other people. Job didn't look at his manservant, his maidservant, and think less of them. Job didn't look at the orphan and the widow and think less of them. Job didn't look at the afflicted. Job didn't look at the one that there's crime being done against them and think, well, they must have deserved it. Job looked at these people and he rushed to help them. He rushed to be one who would care for others. But how has Job been treated in his suffering? If I have withheld anything, verse 16, that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. In other words, if I didn't care for the widow or the, the hungry child, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. From my mother's womb I guided the widows. If I've seen anything perish for lack of clo- anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be broken from its socket. The arm was the symbol of strength. He's saying if I had mistreated the poor, the fatherless, the naked, the deprived, the dispossessed, the impoverished, the widow, then I would deserve to have all my strength ripped from me. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Job says, I didn't do this for anybody but for the glory of God. And yet, what has Job lost? All of his strength. He's this frail man covered in boils. He's lost all of his wealth, and he's despised in all of his suffering. The heart of Job is clean, and yet he has suffered the consequences as though he has dirty hands. All of the evidence points to Job not deserving what is happening. And if Job did these things, he, in his own mind, I would deserve this, then why in the world am I suffering this way? He is like a man who has been found guilty of a crime he didn't commit, spent 20 years in prison, and is now being executed on death row. 
In one sense, what good does it do to use DNA to exonerate somebody that you've already electrocuted? And that's Job's point. What good does it do? God, why are you doing this? Now, I think so then we read through Job, and we see this in Job 31, and we get to the end of it, and I want to go back to a question I asked you several minutes ago. Would you or could you be so bold to stand in God's throne room and say, where's the crime, God? Why am I doing the time if I didn't do the crime? Because my heart goes here. I can think of all these other sinful things I've done. And yet, somehow Job can make this claim, and somehow, somehow, God will say at the end of the book, nothing he said about me was wrong that way. There really is a place in the life of a believer, of a person, that they don't deserve the pain they're going through. And it looks like punishment and wrath. And they didn't do the crime. And I just want to pause and ask you again. Do you give that kind of grace to people that are suffering? Or do you assume they must have done it? Or they must have done something? I just want you to know that when I do that and you do that, that's the leftover mocker in us. And it's not righteous. And so how can Job declare himself to be so righteous? <laughs> we already actually know that Job's claim was not that he was sinless. If you look back over in verse 33, let me show this to you. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart. So Job is given all this evidence, but what Job is not saying is I'm perfect. What he's saying is when I have sinned and where I have sinned, I've repented of it and I've owned it. Because I stood in great fear of the multitude, the contempt of families terrified me. So I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Job is saying, I never hid. My inside matches my outside. And when I sinned, I owned it. Way back in the first couple of chapters of Job, Job was so burdened for righteousness that he would go and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children. At the end of the book of Job, God tells Job to offer sacrifices for his friends that have sinned. Job's claim was not that he was sinless. His claim was, I've done no sin that deserves this. I don't deserve this suffering. Secondarily, he's saying these sins would deserve this kind of suffering. Job has searched his conscience and his life. He's examined his life from its youth. Every believer in deep grief and suffering will struggle with the heart-rending question of why has God turned from them? Why does God hate me? Why has God put his wrath on me? And his silence, God's silence only adds to confusion and pain. Can we make the same claim as Job? I have not done anything to deserve this. And I want you to know in the midst of puzzling pain, yes, you can if you're in Jesus. Because there is a righteousness that we stand in and it's Christ's righteousness.
not our own. Christ's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. Job wasn't perfect, but in this moment, he's actually pointing us ahead to one who is perfect. Job said, there's never been a time, look, if I've sinned, I've repented of it, I've confessed it, I've turned from it, I've offered sacrifice for it. Jesus, though, he's pointing to Jesus who never had to do any of that because Jesus never once sinned. And yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Job's suffering is puzzling pain. It's innocent suffering because he has not done the sins that deserve this kind of punishment. Jesus, though, was completely perfect. He never sinned one time. He never failed. He never wavered. He is the greater fulfillment of Job's innocence. My question is, though, is how does that help Job or me or you? We're a lot like that little boy pretending to be a bigger guard. We are but pale images, midget versions of the greater reality of who Jesus is. Job is but a shadow of who Christ is. And I want you to know, Job is not being arrogant here. And neither are you, O follower of Jesus, when you are suffering things you don't deserve to suffer. Because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now, imputation is another one of those words. So now I've thrown two words that probably feel unnecessary, chiasm and imputation. What does imputation mean? It's a tough word. It's really an accounting word, and I'm not the world's greatest math elite, right? Nobody asked me to be a math ball. And here we have this accounting word, and what it really means is on that ledger of your life, when you open up the ledger of your life and you see all the red on one side, you see all the sin, you see all the wickedness, and you begin to realize that you're a sinner. And the Bible says we've all sinned and we've all come short of God's glory and we deserve wrath because we're sinners. The wages, what we've earned from our sin is death. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus, though, is perfectly righteous. He's never sinned one time. There's not one deficit. There's not one debt. There's no wicked thing he's ever done. And imputation simply means this. All of the righteousness of Jesus' account is put on my account, and all the sin of my account was put on Jesus' account. That's what imputation means. It would be like if you owed uh, all these people, you owe on your house, you owe on your phone, you owe on your car, you owe the pharmacy, you owe the doctor, you owe the hospital, you owe the surgeon, you owe their next door neighbor, you, know, you, you owe your aunts and uncles, you owe your grandparents, you owe your parents, you owe your kids, you owe everybody, you are drowning in debt. You cannot make ends meet. You don't know where the next money's coming from. You're scrounging uh, sofa cushions to get enough money to put gas in the gas tank. You're, 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 you're going... You're not throwing canned foods out that have seemed to have gone past their expiration because you're like, man, I'm so poor, I can't trust the expiration date anymore. And somebody shows up. And they pay it all. Every penny of it. All your debt. They wipe it out completely. They, they are the Jeff Bezos coming to your rescue with their wealth. There's just an astounding level of wealth and they just pay it all, they give it all, uh, it's all taken care of, and it's not just all taken care of now, but it's all taken care of for any future debt that you accrue, it's just paid for, it's paid for, it's paid for. That is imputation of righteousness. You and I are sinners, and Jesus' righteousness is put on our account. We see it 
in Abraham. In Romans 4, 2 through 8, Paul's making his point, and he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if you and I can earn righteousness, it's not a gift anymore, but we can't. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham was a saint and not a saint. He was a saint because he has the righteousness of God, but Abraham was no saint. Remember he lied about his wife twice and put her at great risk to cover his own skin? When he's moving from Ur the Chaldees, he actually gets waylaid and stopped and just hangs out for a while and stops obeying. Abraham had some issues. Abraham didn't just have issues, he had subscriptions. Because then later when his wife says, man, I'm fed up with this whole promise about giving you a son and I can't give you a son, you should take my maidservant. Abraham's like, okay, sounds like a good idea. Let me sleep with the slave girl. Then she has a son, and then his wife gets pregnant, and she gets mad again. So he's like, yeah, you're right. Hagar and Ishmael, you hit the bricks. Go out in the desert. Abraham had major problems. And yet the Romans tells us he had the righteousness of God because he believed by faith. It's not just him, though. It's David. So Paul goes to, to Abraham, and then he goes to David. He says this in Romans 4, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one who, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David is an adulterer, not just once with Bathsheba. He had a whole crew of concubines that lived on the roof of his palace. He's a murderer. He's in fear. He's unjust as a king at points. He has all of his own problems, and yet, and yet he is declared righteous. How? How is Abraham declared righteous? How is David declared righteous? Because God takes the righteousness of Jesus, and to those who will believe, he puts it on your account. When we are in puzzling pain, when we're in a season of suffering we didn't earn, we are prone to think that we are under the wrath of God. But what Paul is telling us in Romans and what Job is putting on display for us is this. Few things can drive us back to the core of the gospel like suffering. And to realize that when you and I are in puzzling pain, suffering things we didn't deserve, it is not his wrath. Because he poured all of his wrath on Jesus so he could pour all of Jesus' righteousness on me. We may not know every reason why we're suffering the way we're suffering. But we know this because of Christ's righteousness. It is not that God has removed his love from you, his child. It is not that God is pouring out his anger on you. It is not that God has ceased to be just. It is not that you are no longer robed in the righteousness of Christ. It's better to be confused than guilty. If you've suffered puzzling pain, you know this to be true. All your heart really aches is to know that God loves you deeply and he accepts you fully. That's all Job really wants. They think he wants his health back, his wife back, his, his kids back, his land back. And Job says, what matters most to me is just know that God loves me. And in Christ's righteousness, he accepts you fully. Maybe your claim is like Job's claim this morning. Maybe it's that you see other people suffering, but it may be that you're suffering puzzling pain. And you're hearing people say, God, I don't deserve this pain. 
Or maybe your own heart is crying that, God, I don't deserve this. Can I just encourage you, because of the testimony of Job and because of the righteousness of Christ, I want to encourage you to finish that sentence with me. God, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve your wrath. I don't deserve rejection. I don't deserve this puzzling pain because I am made perfect in Jesus. And he took all the pain, the wrath and rejection for my sin. God, I believe that. Help my unbelief. And I want you to know we need to preach that to our own hearts. We need to preach it into the lives of others that are suffering. Puzzling pain can help us to rest and rejoice in Christ's righteousness. What would your relationship be like with that person if they just showed up and paid all your debt? How would you respond to them? How are we called to respond to a God who would see us in our own righteousness and take his son's righteousness and put it on us so that he may accept us in? Father,